The New Statesman. Hello, you're listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast from the New Statesman Spotlight team. We cover policy for those who shape it and the businesses it affects. I'm Becky Slack. In this episode, we're discussing a vital issue that's facing the health service over the coming years, the treatment of cancer. The NHS and industry have made huge progress over the last decade in cancer diagnostics and treatments. There have been so many success stories when it comes to the potential for catching the disease early on and paving the way for successful therapies. But there are now even more rapid advances in the cancer treatment landscape. Over the coming years, it won't simply be seen in a brig-board cancer category with some smaller subcategories like lung cancer. Instead, given the advanced diagnostics and genomic testing we're now capable of, it will be more accurate to look at cancer as a group of really rare diseases with smaller and smaller patient populations. That means that treatments too will be tailored towards smaller and smaller groups of people and individuals. These kinds of bespoke medicines are going to lead to vastly improved patient outcomes. Linked with all of this is the fact that there are whole new genomic testing infrastructures and capabilities on the horizon that will allow us to test for individual susceptibility to really specific diseases and to target and mitigate them really effectively. But that's going to mean challenges for the health service in terms of capacity, cost, personnel, infrastructure, and expertise. If we want to harness the powers of advanced medicine to improve patient outcomes, then the NHS will need to adapt and build up its testing and diagnostics infrastructure really rapidly. Part of that is about harnessing the vast amounts of patient data and building on the successes of things like the 100,000 Genomes Project to properly utilize the NHS's unique position as a deposit of high-quality patient information to be used for good. This episode is sponsored by Daichi Sankyo, a pharmaceutical company with world-class oncology expertise and research and development teams. Joining me from Daichi Sankyo is Dr. Mark Moodley, Medical Director of Oncology. Also on the panel, we have Karen Smith, Labour's Shadow Health Minister, and Professor Claire Turnbull, who's an NHS consultant and Professor of Translational Cancer Genetics at the Institute for Cancer Research. Welcome to you all. Let's start with you, Dr. Moodley. In my opener, I referred to the huge progress that's been made in cancer diagnosis. Can you tell us a bit more about this and the difference that it's making to people's lives? Well, thank you, Becky. I think, you know, what we have seen globally is as an improvement in cancer over the last decade, specifically in terms of cancer diagnosis and management. And what we're seeing now is much better outcomes, hopefully, which will play through in the next few years. If I can call out some specifics, the immune checkpoint inhibitors have been a great advance, CAR T-cell therapy, uh, and even things like the, the, va the vaccination against cervical cancer has now played through, we're seeing better outcomes. And we're moving towards a state where we are getting much better at diagnosing earlier and treating these diseases having better outcomes for patients. Claire, you're working in clinical and advanced research settings all the time. Can you tell us a little bit about how diagnostics have evolved and maybe some of the things that we've got to look forward to? So I work predominantly around genetic susceptibility to cancer and we have over the years identified a number of genes and gene changes which increase individuals' risk of developing cancer. And we're actually coming up for 30 years from the first identification of BRCA1 and 2 as made famous by Angelina Jolie. So actually, one of the challenges is taking those research findings across into the clinic. But one of my projects at the moment is developing sort of more high throughput pathways of allowing us to test more and more 
for example, breast cancer patients for whether they have BRCA1 and BRCA2 changes. So at the moment, standard of care is only about 20% of women diagnosed with breast cancer are eligible for NHS testing. And that's because of a lack of clinicians and capacity in laboratories to do that testing. But actually, the tests are relatively cheap and quite effective if we can find those gene changes. So one of the projects my team has been doing is um, working on platforms where patients enter the data themselves. We send them a pack. uh, They send us saliva. And we do it all. We involve clinicians. We have a hotline of genetic counsellors and clinicians. But we try and take the burden off the NHS clinicians in the clinic. And this process is allowing us to open up. We're doing a project in North Thames, testing all women diagnosed with breast cancer for these genes. And also another project with the Jewish population who are known to have a higher frequency of gene changes in BRCA1 and BRCA2. So again, it's this sort of marriage of the technology and the genetics and the laboratory with those pathways of how you get to patients and get their samples and get their results back again. But ultimately, when we find gene change, we know that in a woman that puts her at very high risk of ovarian cancer, which is a cancer for which we still have pretty poor outcomes. So we can offer those women risk-reducing removal of their ovaries and tubes once they've completed their family. Fantastic. That stops women dying of ovarian cancer. And also we offer them either um, intensive breast screening with MRI scans, or they can also have um, risk-reducing breast surgery which is quite a major undertaking. So it's about half and half the women who choose the surgery and the women who choose the screening. But that's a sort of good example of the technology, but then pushing that through into healthcare and all the steps that are required to make it effective. There's been some new research published recently around full genome testing or whole sequence genome testing. What does it mean, both in terms of the science, if you can give a sort of layperson's response, but also for the patient? What does that mean importantly to people's lives? The project that's been reported on most recently is around sequencing the genome of the tumour when a person is diagnosed with cancer. And that gives us more information in terms of the sort of subtype of that cancer, its molecular characteristics. So rather than saying it's a bowel cancer, we can then characterise the molecular changes. This may give us information on its prognosis, whether it's a more aggressive form that that we then need to treat more aggressively with more treatment, or sometimes a a less aggressive form, and we may be able to hold back and not give as much treatment. And then it also may give us information on what treatments work best. So we've, over the last uh, few years, been building up our capacity for testing in laboratories of tumours, historically maybe testing for a few gene changes or a few genes but the technology is now enabling testing, sequencing of the entire genome. So that's all 20,000 genes and the bits in between, which gives us a lot of information. And I think the evaluation at the moment is balancing where we benefit from all of that information. I think some tumor types, that's very helpful. Other tumor types, actually, the information that we need is held within a few genes. And what we need to focus on is making sure that all patients get the testing of that small panel of genes rather than them necessarily needing the whole genome test. And can you tell us a little bit more about the sort of genomic process, like for for the layperson who doesn't really understand what that means? Cancer is a disease where the cells acquire increasingly more mutations, which means they become increasingly badly behaved, which means they reproduce and then they metastasize and so forth. 
So really over the last 10 years, we have evolved the technologies to better characterize the genetic changes in the tumor. So rather than just saying it's a breast cancer or a bowel cancer, we can describe it by the genetic changes that have led to the development of that cancer. And in some instances, that is allowing us to use a treatment that targets a specific genetic change. And lung cancer is a very good example of that. There are mutations in the EGFR gene. We have a number of EGFR inhibitors. And actually, even when the lung cancer evolves to become resistant to our drugs, we have second and third line treatments. Um, And this has really transformed the outcome for a subset of lung cancers from being a few months to several years. Ultimately, cancer is a wily disease. And at the moment, we are unable to conquer it. The cancer will keep mutating against the treatments we give it. But certainly, some of these targeted drugs have extended survival and also meant that the patient can take a tablet rather than having chemotherapy. And typically, the tablet, the targeted treatment, has fewer side effects. And the treatments that Claire just mentioned then, Mark, are, they, are those the kind of things that, that, that Daichi Sankyo is working on? So Daichi Sankyo is you know, committed to oncology research. We have a wide portfolio in, in our area of development. Our current portfolio is looking at some of the cancers that, that Claire mentioned, about lung cancer, breast cancer, and other, other types of solid as well as hematological tumors. What sort of dominates our scientific consciousness at the moment is antibody drug conduits for which our company and several others are invested. And we're seeing, you know, this sort of uh, come through with lots of the congresses and data at the moment. And as far as the NHS goes, what difference is it going to make to the services that they're offering to patients? What, what we will obviously hope to achieve is, is, is good data and show great outcomes for patients uh, and provide different options in armamentarium of the physicians treating these patients such that patients can live longer, fuller lives and have better outcomes. That's ultimately the goal we're looking for. And we're also trying to provide different options at work, as Claire sort of said, specific for patients you know, that will work better for them. And Claire, it seems like this is full of opportunity for both the NHS and for patients. What's needed in order to really capitalise on these opportunities? There's a lot of research going on, both in terms of diagnostics and also therapeutics treatments. But what we do need to keep a close eye on is the effect of these treatments. And some of these new drugs in clinical trials may only confer a a month or two's benefit. And that's in the clinical trial, which is a very sort of rarefied patient group. So then when applied to the general population, those benefits may be considerably less. So I think there is the research arm and there's all kinds of amazing technology being developed and amazing experiments and trials and so forth. But what's critically important here is to balance that with the public health perspective and to have independent evaluation of the impact of these drugs. Because what we want to ensure is that we're using our NHS resource, both in terms of the economic resource, but also the staff resource to undertake tests and deliver treatments that have the most effect on patient confer the most significant survival benefit for the money spent. So that is a a really important thing to balance against all of the progress in technology. Karen, let's bring you in here. Listening to what Mark and Claire have been saying, what's Labour's position on this? I know that where Streeting has spoken a lot about adopting new technologies and preventative medicine in the NHS. What does this mean in reality? And how are you going to deliver on what Claire was saying about the balance needed between financial resources and research? 
I mean, I think Claire makes an excellent point there. And I mean, our approach and our offer to the electorate, should we gain their permission to become the next government, has been very much focused around workforce and people to deliver services. The government have adopted a workforce plan, so we're pleased they listen to us on that and we'll see how far they get with it. We've also made the commitment and our Fit for the Future Fund around diagnostics to double up our capacity because we know we fall very much behind other countries and our commitment to life sciences and in government, I think our, our record was superb and we are reaping the benefits of that last Labour government's investment in research and development and that's certainly where we have already made commitments and would seek to go further. I mean, what our colleagues here are doing and what so many people in our country and across the world are doing and the pace of it is just astonishing. And we've got, though, an NHS that is not in the 21st century able to deliver it, which is why our mission for government is around making the NHS fit for the 21st century. And that includes adoption of technology, changes in culture around how that technology is used. But let's face it, most of us aren't in this specialised sector. Most of us are in our neighbourhoods trying to go to our GP practice. And we have to make sure that we have that access into primary and community services in order to find the people who are, you know, if they got there earlier, would have better outcomes. So we have to, and it's a challenge, to match this fantastic high-level research development and, and capability that is now in our country with a health service that is not ready to deliver it. So that's very much our focus because primary care and GPs, if you can't get in there, you, you know, you're already behind in the backlog before you even get into secondary care or, or tertiary services. Claire, did you want to come back in there? Yes, I, I really want to echo what Karen's saying that there are, broadly speaking, three main areas where money can be spent. You can spend money on very expensive treatments for people with advanced cancer. And these are the types of antibody conduits and CAR-T therapy that Mark speaks of. And these may give people with advanced cancer several more months and on occasion more years. But that's a limited gain at the moment from those technologies and they're very expensive. At the other end, there's a lot of enthusiasm about population screening using technologies such as circulating tumor DNA. But if you go out to the population, screening the population, that, that's hundreds of thousands of people with the possibility of doing harm to people who are perfectly well, over-diagnosing and treating things that would never have come to medical attention, the whole issue of false positives and so forth. In the middle and where we're doing very poorly and you have huge benefit is urgent investigation and management of people presenting with symptoms. And that's exactly where Karen is speaking to, having capacity in primary care that people can be assessed rapidly with their symptoms, referred for rapid investigation and rapid treatment. And that's what we call the two-week wait to get the first test and, and then the 31-day wait to get the confirmation. And then it's the 62-day wait to get your first treatment. We're not even making those targets and they're not particularly ambitious targets. But if you have a known cancer growing inside you that's symptomatic, you want to get that patient to a surgeon as quickly as possible because that is the difference between if that's a 50-year-old giving them 30 years of life expectancy because you cure their cancer versus months or a few years because you have missed that window. And so that area in the middle, managing symptomatic patients, is where we need to do the work. And it, it's the hard work 
because it's actually around capacity, it's around training, it's around primary care, it's around pathways, it's around gluing together where the patient goes next and getting them to a surgeon or on some occasions radiotherapy as quickly as possible. And at either end, um, the other two groups I spoke about, there's a lot of excitement about new technologies and new tests. But actually, from my perspective, it's that group in the middle, the symptomatic patients, where we can make the most difference in terms of long-term survival. And reducing waiting lists then. Exactly. It's It's getting to the GP, getting to the specialist, the patient then having the investigations, the endoscopy, the MRI. If their cancer is confirmed, they then need a second round of investigations to stage it. So they need the PET scanner, so forth. And then they need to get to the surgeon. Because if they have, you know, particularly stage one or two, or even stage three cancer, the sooner you chop that cancer out, the more likely it is that you have prevented it spreading. Each week that goes by, a proportion of patients will have flipped over from being curable to non-curable. So that, that once that clock is ticking, we can make a huge impact by tightening those timelines. But that's hard work. That's staffing and organisation. I agree with both Karen and Claire. I think those are both very valid points from a population perspective. That's where we should be making investments as well. Inevitably, we want to identify early these patients, you know, curative surgery, as Claire said. But unfortunately, a vast swathes of patients already beyond that point and towards the later part in the life cycle of the, the evolution of therapy, we also need to think about how we adopt some of those technologies for them. And Karen, Claire's point about waiting lists, what does Labour plan to do about that? That's been our primary concern. We've committed to looking at two million more appointments in order to tackle that backlog. That was our announcement at last Labour Party conference, along with those Fit for the Future Fund on the, on the diagnostics for those scanners at that level that we need, because as I said, we are so far behind other countries and we've committed to that from um, abolishing the non-DOM status that I hope people have heard of by now that the government still don't want to commit to. But we think that's an absolute priority and we want to be very clear with the British public about where that money comes from. Uh, But the wider point that both Claire have made is is also around population screening and public health messaging, because ultimately we want to try and where we can stop people getting some of these diseases and helping people through that. So we have also committed to things like banning junk food advertising. Even as we record this earlier today, we've been accused, we have this discussion again about the nanny state. But the reality is we know that some of these things can be prevented. I know the the science is telling us and looking at our own genomes to see if there is some predictability. But we also do know that many of the diseases that our people face particularly in areas of deprivation, uh, are preventable before we even use the fantastic work that our colleagues are doing. But screening, for example, and I think this was raised before, you know, the bowel testing screening thing, I'm at the age where it comes through your door. Now, I know people and it just sits on the shelf for a long time. And I also know people who have used it and found with no symptoms at all that they have had a cancer and have then gone on to treatment. It's fantastic. It's very simple. But when you have things like that, you have to accompany it with public health messaging to not leave it on the shelf, to tell people it's simple. The pandemic in terms of testing ourselves has helped, I think, psychologically with people doing some home testing, but really promoting that, that it's simple that it helps save lives, that you can work in partnership with your GP, with the health service. You have power and autonomy as a patient to do some of this and helping people through some of that. 
that's what I meant when I referred earlier to some cultural changes as well, that, that, that we get the health service and public health to be working with us as individuals. Claire? I'm a research geneticist, and we have genetic susceptibility to different types of cancers. But actually, most of the major cancers, bowel cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and so forth, are predominantly caused by the accrued exposure to environmental risks over a lifetime. And those are exactly the factors where public health interventions around diet, um, obesity, smoking and exercise can mitigate that large proportion of the risk. Obviously, lung cancer and and, um, esophageal cancer, pancreatic cancer, laryngeal cancer, particularly caused by smoking. We're doing pretty well on smoking. We still could do a lot better. But actually, as, as Karen says, diet, there's a lot of research around diet, ultra processed foods, microbiomes that have really brought to the fore the influence of lifetime of exposure to dietary factors. And we only need to shift the curve of the population quite a small amount to have a major impact, not just on cancer, but on cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and other causes of morbidity and mortality. Um, So again, these are hard work interventions. And and that's why the sort of shiny new technologies seem, seem like a sort of easier route to champion. But actually, hard work on sorting out public health interventions, messaging carrots and sticks around bans and taxation and subsidies will go a very long way in the long term to reducing the burden of cancer and other common chronic diseases. Mark, we've heard there some ideas from Claire. I mean, from your perspective, what does industry and the private sector need in order to make the adoption of of these new technologies and new medicines successful? It's how do we make investments in our NHS such that the capacity, personnel, the infrastructure is there to adopt it where appropriate. A lot of these technologies will not be for everybody, but it's where it's appropriate and where we can identify the patients who can gain the most because we need to be applying the resource where, where we get the most benefits. The other thing I don't think we have mentioned is we've been looking at clinical trials and standardising those processes because what we're benefiting from is these huge trials that are going on in this country and across the world. But clinical trials have become difficult, very bureaucratic. It's really important that they're rigorous and we have that standard in this country. But we want to look at that, learn from, again, some of the, the faster moving work in the pandemic to make that simpler so that colleagues here can get on with their brilliant work. And, and things like procurement, all of those things we're certainly looking very hard at in order to help sustain the system for the 21st century so that these people can do their fantastic work and get those outcomes that we all want. We need to improve our diversity in clinical trials. You know, this is something that we speak throughout the world and we want to do more genetic testing, but the flip side of that is getting more patients of diversity into clinical trials, which we are very keen to do. But we need to work in partnership to achieve that. I think the idea of working in partnership is a, a nice note for us to end on. So thank you very much, everybody, for your contributions. It's been absolutely fascinating and I'm very much looking forward to the next phase of development. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more of Spotlight's policy reporting in our standalone Spotlight podcast feed or the New Statesman Spotlight website. The links are in the show notes. To find out more about our sponsor, Daiichi Sankyo, and their work on advanced medicines, you can also visit the website. I'm Becky Slack, and our producer has been Chris Stone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.